Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. This podcast is a Royfield Brown production. Find others on iTunes. All right. Yeah, I know. Mr. Pop. That the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. Four score and seven years ago. When in the course of human events. And so, my fellow Americans, ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. The Agora Podcast Network. Agora is a marketplace of the mind, where intelligent, independent podcasts meet curious and discerning listeners. Our network of shows includes American Biography, The Bohemian Podcast, How Jamaica Conquered the World, The History of the Papacy, The History of England, The History of Alchemy Podcast, Mid-Atlantic, When Diplomacy Fails, 1001 Conversations, History of Anglo-Saxon England, the secret cabinet from Germany. Ten American presidents. The History of Germany podcast. The Agora Podcast Network.com. Listen to Agora today. Now, this month in the Agora Podcast Network, we are featuring the excellent podcast, The History of England by one David Crowther. If you haven't uh, listened to it already, you haven't really listened to one of the best history podcasts out there, we recommend that you get over to iTunes or on Acast and listen to it today. On an unusually bitter morning of the 2nd of December 1823, a fine black horse rode down Pennsylvania Avenue carrying a man who, at first glance, did not seem particularly important. Indeed, he failed to gain much attention from passing citizens as he sped by. There was a good reason for this apparent anonymity. The rider wasn't necessarily all that important. What was really important was what he carried under his arm. 
It was a State of the Union address, the kind made by every President of the United States of America, normally on an annual basis. Though George Washington had begun the practice and had delivered the statement in person and by mouth, subsequent presidents did not follow suit. There was an unbroken span of 113 years where State of the Union addresses would be made by the delivery of a document, not by the presentation of a grand speech to one's peers. This span was only broken by Woodrow Wilson in 1913, and the practice at that stage then matured into the publicity and attention-grabbing event we know of today. On this morning, in early December 1823, the President's message was delivered by courier to the Capitol building. The rider got off his horse, hitched it to the building side, ignored the ongoing maintenance work which had been ongoing for years since the British had partially burned the building's interior, and walked towards the building's front entrance. Once face to face with the VIPs of American governance, he then hand-delivered copies of the letter to members of the Senate and to the House of Representatives. It was, as historian Edward Renahan called it, quote, just another opening bid in the bartering game that defined American politics, end quote. Yet, this was more than that. Presenting this statement to his countrymen was President James Monroe. And this was no ordinary document or message or statement. It was instead a directive. Some would call it a policy, others a political pamphlet or propaganda piece. Monroe's advisors had settled on doctrine, since this was in line with the kind of Spanish legal lingo that they were trying to communicate to the mostly Iberian targets of the message. This was the Monroe Doctrine, and though its recipients could not have known it yet, they were feasting their eyes upon perhaps the most important document in American foreign policy history. My name is Zach Twomley, and I run When Diplomacy Fails podcast. My podcast takes a different approach to other podcasts when it examines great conflicts. Instead of focusing on battles or military strategy, what I prefer to do is examine the key characters, the background to conflicts, and the reasons why people in critical positions believed that the failure of diplomacy might not have been such a bad thing. Once the actual outbreak of war is examined, I switch gears and look at its immediate aftermath as well as try to trace its consequences a little bit. The reason why I'm explaining the format of my podcast now isn't for cross-promotional purposes, though of course there's a bit of that. The main reason why I've just explained the When Diplomacy Fails formula is because I want to emulate it here. Let me explain what I mean. This podcast won't be following the traditional formula of 10 American presidents, sorry Royfield, insofar as we won't be giving you a typical bio of James Monroe here. Sorry to disappoint. Instead, more in line with the focus of when diplomacy fails, we'll be examining the Monroe Doctrine as our main event. In other words, we'll examine the background and context of that piece of legislation, its implications, effects, and the aftermath of its creation. We'll then trace its consequences and try to ascertain its legacy. Of course, we can't examine the Monroe Doctrine without looking a bit, at least, of the man behind it, so we won't be ignoring James Monroe. His life just won't serve as our main event, if you like, in this episode. If you think you like the idea of me examining the diplomatic atmosphere of the United States in the early 19th century, as well as giving you a detailed analysis of one of the most important documents America ever produced in its history, 
then stay with us. It's gonna be a pretty incredible ride, so if you're ready, let's begin. I will now take you to the year 1758, the year in which our man James Monroe was born. With a family that could trace its roots to Scotland, thanks to his emigrating great-grandfather who left that land for pastures new in the mid-17th century, as well as French Huguenots who left France in the early 1700s, baby James Monroe was born into a middle-class planter family of moderate financial means in Westmoreland County, Virginia on the 28th of April, 1758. James did rather well in school, showing promise in mathematics and Latin before at the age of 16 he inherited his now considerable plantation and troop of slaves from his father in 1774. A year later, family connections enabled him to enroll in the College of William and Mary in Williamsburg, Virginia. Though living in an atmosphere charged with excitement over the coming rebellion against Britain's George III, Monroe didn't seem to take the political circumstances very seriously until 1776, when he elected to drop out of college. From here he used his societal clout to gain a commission in the 3rd Virginia Regiment, and stamped his name alongside the countless others who participated in the War for American Independence. Monroe followed the fortunes of the war, which only seemed to really go America's way following the Battle of Trenton on Christmas Day 1776, where both he and George Washington were badly wounded. Sent home to nurse his wounds, James was nominated to raise another band of militia, but it wasn't needed until 1780 when the British invaded Richmond in Virginia and its governor, Thomas Jefferson, commissioned Monroe to raise an army to repel the invasion. Over the following years, Monroe would remain close to Jefferson, taking the decision to study law under his advice in 1783. The decision to enter into the world of law was taken due to Monroe's desire for influence, according to one biographer, and not for his interest in actual legal theory. But the move seemed to pay off, and he married his revolutionary sweetheart in 1786. Owing to his success in law and smart decisions to sell off his plantation and become an absentee slave owner, Monroe was able to purchase another plantation, which would become James Monroe House in 1788. He wasn't exactly what you could call frugal. The extravagant lifestyle seemed to suit him, and he went out of his way to participate in the high societies which he came into contact with as he travelled around the country. This caused him to incur a number of debts which would follow him to his grave, and his plantations were never especially successful despite his ambitions to eventually retire to a romantically prosperous one with his children in retirement. It seemed that Monroe wasn't destined for the quiet life after all, since he had already begun to lean towards a political career by 1784. Dipping his toe in the political waters when he ran for the Virginia House of Delegates in 1782, Monroe was then elected to Congress two years later, and travelled to France as a US ambassador to that country in 1794. (music) 
Monroe's old ties to Jefferson certainly helped grease the wheels of his career, but his new appointment was far from an easy ride. It was to prove a difficult and challenging posting. The French Revolutionary Wars had recently erupted, putting the former ally of the United States in a position of expectance where American aid was concerned. Monroe made it his mission to communicate to the French revolutionaries that, though the United States and indeed Monroe himself sympathised with the French Revolution, the country would remain a benevolent neutral and wouldn't favour, for example, Britain over France. Yet Monroe was seriously undermined in his efforts to be taken seriously when news was received in Paris over the Jay Treaty, which had been signed between British and American representatives in late November 1794. Monroe was horrified at what he saw as the lingering influence of the British staying behind in Washington's presidency, and he began to make his opposition to this new direction in United States policy felt. This behaviour brought him into conflict with Washington, who actually recalled James Monroe back home. Washington had criticised Monroe's inefficiency, disruptive manoeuvres and failure to safeguard the interests of his country and Monroe never saw the aging father of the American state in the same way again. Returning home disenchanted with the way American policy was going, he re-entered law and began to rebuild his reputation. He soon caught the attention of the young American Republic's factionalist agendas, and was elected Governor of Virginia on a Democrat-Republican platform in 1799, where he would remain until 1802. Events such as the quasi-war with France and a slave rebellion nearby occupied his attentions, but he was ready for duty when President Jefferson came knocking. Jefferson wanted someone to negotiate the Louisiana Purchase, an offer which would greatly expand American influence and power into the previously French-held South, courtesy of a pragmatic Napoleon Bonaparte. Events in Europe were taking a troubling turn for the British, who were virtually alone against the French by the time Monroe agreed to help negotiate a renewal of the Jay Treaty that he had once so despised. The ten years of peace had proved highly beneficial to the United States, and Monroe accepted that war against the British would be a costly, needless affair. With much success, he was able to renew the Jay Treaty and create the Monroe-Pinkerton Treaty on the 31st of December 1806. Monroe's former mentor and now the United States President, Thomas Jefferson, refused to sign off on it though, believing that the greatest tool of the United States remained the threat of commercial war with Britain rather than closer cooperation with their former British masters. In addition to this, some saw the new treaty as a failure since it hadn't addressed the issue of impressment which to Jefferson and his allies had become so sensitive and important. It was offensive to American national honour and pride to have its sailors rounded up and forced to serve on British vessels, but try as he might, Monroe could not get these stubbornly desperate British to budge. For their part, in London, there was a genuine belief that many British deserters genuinely did serve on United States ships, and it was considered a better option to offend the young American Republic than to let these deserters go and potentially lose the war to Napoleon for want of manpower. Monroe's insistence that he had done all he could fell on deaf ears, and when the treaty he had sought went nowhere and Jefferson refused point-blank to sign off on it, the United States and Britain began to drift towards war. When he returned to domestic politics, Monroe found himself a pawn of the Republican factionalists once again. 
This time it was the old Republicans who claimed that Jefferson had betrayed true Republican principles and that a new leader should be elected in his place. They nominated Monroe for the presidency and allied themselves with the rapidly failing Federalist Party to shore up support in New England where the latter had its base. Yet the 1808 election didn't go Monroe's way and he lost out to James Madison, a protege of Jefferson and for a time his good friend turned rival since the varied snubs of before in France. Though Monroe remained an important figure and was re-elected governor of Virginia again in early 1811, he didn't hold the posting for long, and instead decided to make amends with James Madison and take up a post as Secretary of State in his cabinet. Madison wanted Monroe on board because he understood that the latter was constantly being courted by the more radical factions of the Democratic-Republican Party and Madison desperately wanted to maintain unity in his government. Despite a desire for unity, a year later President Madison had a large role to play in ensuring that the US went to war with Britain in the War of 1812, a costly, wasteful stalemate of a war which saw the United States perform well under the circumstances but suffer the burning of their capital. Desperate for good news, at one point Monroe was appointed Secretary of State for War in September 1814, but the peace came before he could bring any grand plans to bear the following February. Monroe then resigned from his position as Secretary of State for War, having dramatically increased his profile and carried himself as a multi-layered statesman who was just as happy negotiating as he was on the battlefield. This notoriety went with him as 1815 progressed when it became clear that the factionalist split in the Democratic-Republican Party had reached such a point that no one would be able to contest Monroe if he chose to stand for the presidency. With very little effective rivals for the throne, Monroe sailed through the Electoral College in the 1817 presidential election and planned to make his mark on the office. From an early stage, it was clear that this would not be a biased or divided presidency. Monroe made appointments based on merit, not affiliation, and this, combined with the traumatic national experience of the Napoleonic and War of 1812 wars, led to an atmosphere of cooperation and unity in a time that has since been called the Era of Good Feelings. But the feelings couldn't last forever. Monroe presided over some seriously challenging national and international times for the Americans. Concerns over Spanish intentions in Florida and in the Mexican territories created the tensions which led to the so-called Panic of 1819, which itself was the beginning of America's first major economic downturn, brought about by property speculation and reckless lending. 110 years before the Wall Street crash of 1929, the average American citizen was still at the mercy of the financial system, which they believed here to have gotten ahead of itself and now was requiring a leash. Many Americans became more politicised as a result of the panic, and the shortage of funds and depressing atmosphere led in time to a more nationalistic, factionalist policy which the Jacksonian era would embody. 1820 was the year of the Missouri Compromise, in which a line was effectively drawn across the width of the United States, as well as the territories they coveted in the West, so as to define how far slavery could and could not go. 
It was agreed to by both the pro and anti-slavery factions in Congress, but as the name suggests, it was not a solution, merely a compromise under the circumstances. Monroe, a former slave owner and plantation magnate himself, would certainly have leaned towards the pro-slavery camp, but it is difficult to assert one way or another which side he preferred. And besides, Monroe's major occupation was not domestic, but foreign policy. He had sent a renowned American statesman by the name of John Quincy Adams to negotiate with the Spanish over the status of Florida, where many escaped slaves and rebellious Native Americans took refuge in the turmoil of the region. Determined to settle the issue, President Monroe played down the natural sympathies many Americans felt for the rebelling Latin American states of South and Central America, who had taken the opportunity in the years before to break free while the Portuguese and Spanish were occupied with the Napoleonic forces that overran Iberia. Within the next two years, Florida would be officially United States territory. The once restricted 13 colonies had extended their influence yet again. But Monroe had to be wary of the European climate. Primarily, the existence of the numerous alliance blocs which threatened to turn back the clock and reinstate the old order of the monarchy. To Monroe and others, this commitment suggested that a Spanish invasion of Latin America, backed by the Quad Alliance of France, Prussia, Austria and Russia, and with an eye towards re-establishing new European empires in place of the new Latin American republics, was coming down the pipeline. Having continued to communicate with this Quad Alliance, who were generally represented by the Russians in diplomatic terms, Monroe had found more and more to be concerned about, and from his executive residence, he sent for John Quincy Adams. He was in need of the advice of his good friend and the Secretary of State for Foreign Affairs, yet again. John Quincy Adams knocked once on the door of an inner room of the executive residence, entered briskly, and found himself privy to a sombre scene. President Monroe was at his study, as was customary, but the normal swagger and confidence had mostly faded from the president's face, replaced as it was with a sense of apprehension and uncertainty, mixed with a graveness deep in his eyes which to Adams suggested that great danger was about to face the administration. It was mid-November 1823, and across the old world as well as the new, grave challenges had presented themselves to the burgeoning American Republic. Less than a decade since making peace with Britain under the Treaty of Ghent, of which, as Secretary of State, Adams was a key mover and signee, the threat of conflict still lingered on. This time though, it was not the old enemy of Britain which was the threat, instead it was the alliance system inherited from the Napoleonic Wars whereby Russia, Austria, and Prussia had banded together in the name of absolutism, the old monarchical principles, and to forestall any earthquakes in Europe, such as the ones Napoleon had caused. These old European powers feared above all that their hierarchical systems would come under threat from new republican ideals and democratic incentives, and sought to quell any such moves with force. It was the Russian Emperor, Tsar Alexander I, who often acted as the spokesperson on international affairs for this Triple Alliance. This was the first bloc which American policymakers had to be wary of. The second grouping, Adams and indeed President Monroe feared, were the old Iberian colonizers, 
Portugal and Spain, though Spain was by far the most active. The Napoleonic Wars had not been kind to the imperial designs of either, and while both had been occupied in the war's early phases in Europe, their colonial possessions in South America revolted, splintering off from their homeland and establishing themselves as fresh republics with brave ambitions for their newfound independence. Throughout the 1810s, these new republics had waged war against their old masters, but by 1820, Spain and Portugal had been exhausted, and had proved themselves unable to contest the claims made by the national ambitions of their cousins across the Atlantic Ocean. Furthermore, revolutionary activities in both states in Europe cast a worrying shadow over the very stability within Europe, and France seemed poised to invade Spain proper in the name of putting down a republican revolution against its old Bourbon monarch, while Portugal's societal divisions and rampant debts had ruined its once iconic status and now recast it as a fringe player in European relations, whose very government had to battle with its populace for a mandate to rule. In short, neither Spain nor Portugal possessed the abilities to take back what they had once lost, but this had not stopped American foreign policymakers theorizing about what would befall Latin America next. It was easy for President Monroe to feel alarmed, and as he sat with Adams, who had served as his de facto foreign advisor for the majority of his second term, both tried to gain a handle on the situation and see how they could best resolve it to America's advantage. Since he had been elected president for a second term in 1821, America had been seeking to re-establish itself on the international stage. The first step of this was to follow the lead of Europe and rebuild. War had not been kind to either American ambitions or its infrastructure. Monroe sat in a makeshift imitation of the White House, since the original remained unsuitable for his residence as it was still being rebuilt. Across the burgeoning, growing American continent, building programs were in place. Houses to accommodate those that had been persuaded to move further west in pursuit of new land, militias to combat the threat posed by indigenous American tribes who continued to engage in tit-for-tat campaigns against migrating American settlers, townships to administer the growing population of America which had been bolstered by scores of Europeans eager to see what the fuss was all about in the new world. Roads to connect the scattered and often desolate settlements which grew increasingly sparse in the interior. Maps to account for the fact that America's borders and sense of geographical awareness had increased dramatically since its birth as a nation. Cartographers were almost certainly having a field day. Finally, legislation was being constructed to account for the expanding rate of the American state, which by 1822 legally included Florida thanks to a $5 million deal with Spain. This was certainly a time of growth for Monroe's nation, but it was also a time of trial. As a lieutenant in the Revolutionary Wars and as a general in the War of 1812, he knew only too well the impact of war, the damage it could do to a nation's confidence, to its sense of invincibility, to its power. The Warhawks in Congress, which had plunged the country into war, now stood outside Monroe's confidence as president. He was determined to avoid any future conflict, while he also contributed to the downward trend of the American Federalist Party, which by the early 1820s seemed set to disappear, leaving a gaping hole in American politics, which the Democratic-Republican Party seemed destined to awkwardly fill. 
If clouds seemed certain on the domestic horizon, then they seemed doubly so abroad. But clouds, as both President Monroe and Adams knew, often had silver linings. Their silver lining, in this instance, was found in the fact that the British seemed very much against the idea of Spain or Portugal reclaiming their lost colonies in the pursuit of war, as Monroe feared they would try to do. It was not so much that Monroe's foreign affairs guru feared the military might of the Iberians, but instead it was the ability of the Quintuple Alliance, featuring Britain, France, Austria, Russia and Prussia, and formed in 1818, to resurrect the Latin American empires in the name of withholding the old order which Adams, Monroe and many others within his administration feared. The Quintuple Alliance was by definition an awkward invention, and had been created with the sole purpose of rolling back Europe's clock and reversing the inroads into sovereignty, democracy and which the Napoleonic Wars had evoked. The baby American Republic saw itself as the embodiment of the ideals and values which European nations had agitated for during the wars, and thus there was a great deal of ideological support when Republican-minded states began to break free from Europe and South America. Though America and Britain had engaged in a war only a decade before, the two were actually closer ideologically than most states. Britain's monarchy was at least constitutional and contained a republican-style parliamentary system, whereas Europe remained under the sway of absolutism and seemed content to stay that way if its rulers had anything to say about it. It should thus come as little surprise to note that the odd man out of the so-called quintuple alliance was the British Empire since, while it wanted to prevent another Napoleon, it could not and would not suppress calls for reform and greater freedoms abroad. Sir George Canning was Britain's Foreign Secretary from late 1822, and he sought to reconcile the differences Britain held with its alliance members and its own ideological independence. It was not an easy task. London undoubtedly had ambitions of its own for America, and its policymakers hadn't put off the idea of colonizing new areas of North America for its own gain, simply because the United States experiment had gone belly up. In the name of Canadian security, the triumphant post-war British could have found a pretext of their own to send expeditions of their own southwest into modern-day California, but such pretexts stalled. Instead, an unlikely player in the American game, Russia, voiced its own interest in the region. In the UCAS of 1821, issued in late September of that year, Russia's government claimed sovereignty over vast swathes of territory in North America, including much of the West Coast and all of Alaska, which by this stage it still owned. This irritated Britain as much as America, since both had extensive fishing and trading interests in the region and the claim basically ignored the historical fact that both had made far more use out of the region than Russia ever had. In time, the issue would be negotiated in back-to-back -back treaties in 1824 and 25, with America and Britain respectively gaining respect for their borders and interests, but before this compromise it merely added to the already existing tensions coming from Europe. The very wars that so concerned President Monroe upon the assumption of his presidency in 1817 
also concerned Sir George Canning and the British Empire. Austria brutally suppressed revolts in North Italy. Russia and France came to the aid of the Ottomans, of all empires, against the nationalistic Greeks. Prussia, Austria and Russia remained wholly opposed to any semblance of Polish independence and kept the once proud Polish nation in a state of petrified silence. All of these moves were made in the name of maintaining European stability and they soon escalated tensions in Europe. In the name of restoring his absolutist cousin to the throne, French forces under Louis XVIII's ambition invaded Spain and toppled the burgeoning Spanish liberal movement there in a war called the Spanish Expedition, but also called names as fancy as the Hundred Thousand Sons of Saint Louis, a name gained from the claim made by the Bourbon King Louis XVIII that a hundred thousand Frenchmen are ready to march, invoking the name of Saint Louis, to safeguard the throne of Spain for a grandson of Henry IV of France. In an atmosphere of de facto civil war in Spain, French forces marched down the country, upended the liberal government, freed the imprisoned Spanish king, Ferdinand VII, from his despair in the city of Cadiz, and sacked that city in early November 1823. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Under a compromise negotiated with elements of the Liberal Cortes, or Spanish Parliament which had fought the Liberal fight, Ferdinand VII agreed to a set of laws which would in time enshrine a less absolutist regime in Spain. The war had been a bloody and seriously worrying one for the Holy Alliance, Quadruple Alliance and Quintuple Alliance, which had sought to control the hearts and minds of Europe. 
Yet, no matter what they called their alliance, they could not control the feelings of the Spanish populace, who had elected to die in large numbers rather than submit to Ferdinand VII's absolutist rule. Nor could they control the influx of Europeans all across the continent who had fought in sympathy with the Spanish liberalists. Yet, what the French expedition proved as it dragged on over the course of 1823 was that brute force could solve the problems which the old order faced. Liberal republican ideals could be stamped out and compromise ignored if one acted fast enough. This was a message which King Ferdinand of Spain himself had learned. Though he had been returned to power in the atmosphere of forced compromise, he quickly turned on the liberal elements of his country, brutally suppressing any sentiments of sympathy with modernity and ensuring that the ideologues of the civil war were betrayed in the name of his own ambitions and thirst for absolute power. With the support of the French occupying force, which would not leave Spain fully until 1828, Ferdinand felt confident to roll back the progress his countrymen yearned for, and re-established himself forcefully as Spain's absolute monarch. With news of this turnaround in early November 1823, it was easy for men like Monroe and Adams to feel nervous at what the newly triumphant king, Ferdinand, would seek to do next. Surely he would act in the name of the same divine rights which had stuck him back on the Spanish throne and come across the Atlantic in search of his old dominions? Were he to do so, he would almost certainly enjoy the backing of at least four powers of Europe that had placed him there, France, Russia, Prussia and Austria though British support was quite unlikely. Having rolled back the clock in Europe, American policymakers saw the logical next step to be the rolling back of the clock in the New World, where a set of independent republics now existed that wanted nothing to do with their old masters. And it wasn't just the New Republics that wanted nothing to do with a re-establishment of another American empire. Both Britain and the United States began to enjoy cordial relations and, above all, preferential trading rights with the new Latin American states. Though the newly independent countries of Mexico, Gran Colombia, the Empire of Brazil, the Argentine Confederation, Peru and Paraguay had been established on somewhat unstable ground, they had each crafted their laws and codified their own constitutions by the time France was raising Cadiz, and as far as both London and Washington were concerned, they were here to stay, and the beneficial relationships that both English-speaking countries had come to cultivate could not now be replaced by a resurgent Spanish empire, no matter who supported it. This was the silver lining which Adams was able to relate to James Monroe in mid-November 1823, as he tried to ease the president's concerns. The European situation may be grave and the alliance system there may be dead set against the exact kind of governmental style which the United States so valued, but at least a vast ocean separated them from Europe, and at least the British agreed with the American sentiments, and at least this nominal American ally possessed the world's largest navy. Desperate to cultivate this common ground with the only friend America seemed to possess, Adams advised President Monroe in early November of the importance of getting the British further on side. Commercial interests aside, it was very difficult for Monroe and others in his administration to ignore what was happening down south, as Mark T. Gilderhus explains in his article, Monroe Doctrine, Meanings and Implications. 
Quote, The Latin American Wars for Independence inspired a great deal of interest among citizens of the United States. Indeed, many, such as Congressman Henry Clay of Kentucky, regarded them as serious attempts to emulate the American Revolution. As Clay observed in 1818, Latin American leaders such as Simon Bolivar and José de San Martín have adopted our principles, copied our institutions, and employed the very language and sentiment of our revolutionary papers. Such perceptions probably attributed too much importance to the United States example and not enough to indigenous circumstances, but nevertheless they indicated high levels of popular enthusiasm. End quote. Despite the principles which Americans saw as emulated in South America during their revolts, President Monroe actually held off on recognizing their independence for a time. Until he had secured Spanish acquiescence for an American purchase of Florida in 1819, much was done to maintain the best possible relationship with Spain, for fear of offending her and torpedoing the efforts which Adams, as American Foreign Secretary, was pursuing. After that though, and after Spain said goodbye to Florida for good in 1822, all bets were off, and the flood of recognitions of South and Central American states throughout late 1822 and spring 1823 were a testament to the ideological sympathy that Americans felt. Spring 1823 was also the critical point when the last of Spain's forces were evicted from South America and its states were placed firmly in the revolutionaries' hands. To Monroe this meant opportunity, but just because London believed in the independence of Latin America too, did not mean that the United States would not have to compete with the British influence there. Almost from the get-go, British Foreign Secretary Lord Castlereagh had, up until his death by suicide in August 1822, advocated a policy of maintaining the European alliance system while seeking to formulate a uniquely British response to the situation which the revolting Latin American states posed. Castlereagh's suicide, to put it bluntly, complicated matters for London, since his successor was the divisive Sir George Canning, who we've met before and who would have the unfortunate distinction of splitting the Conservative Party in half due to his nomination as Prime Minister in 1827, a position he would only hold then for a little over a hundred days before dying himself in that office. But Sir George Canning is an important figure for us in this episode because he was opposed to Castlereagh's way of representing Britain abroad. He resented Britain's ties to the European alliance system, especially when it restricted her freedoms abroad. As far as he was concerned, Britain had to act independently of the alliance blocs in Europe and craft advantageous circumstances abroad which would better signify Britain's predominance in the commercial and diplomatic world. Canning's method of conducting British foreign policy would later be analysed in the prism of what became known as splendid isolation, in that it seemed to create a whole new way of conducting foreign policy. But where this is relevant to us in America, because this is 10 American presidents, is that because he was seeking to distance himself from Europe, Canning put it straight into the common concerns of Britain's enemy of a decade before and its thoroughly troubled president. Though Monroe and Adams had agreed that Canning's desire to cooperate boded well for American fortunes, there was a chasm of differences in opinion within Monroe's administration over how to best make use of the British relationship. Should they behave in tandem with Canning, issuing a joint declaration to the European powers warning against any interference with the independence of Latin America? Or should America distinguish itself from the British by issuing a directive of its own? The US ambassador to London, Richard Rush, 
had a series of conversations with George Canning in an effort to gauge what the latter sought to gain from an Anglo-American joint strategy, and Rush came to believe that a joint Anglo-American declaration against European intervention would be in America's best interests. He communicated these developments to President Monroe and sought direction on where to act, and this set Monroe going in October 1823 to find an approach that would benefit both sides. He consulted then with America's veteran statesmen, figures such as Thomas Jefferson and James Madison, who actually advised Monroe to act in tandem with Britain, since this would ensure the support of the Royal Navy and guarantee American security. However, Adams was firmly in favour of acting independently, as much as was possible for the United States in this case, and Monroe tended to go along with the advice of his foreign policy favourite, since he had more than proved his worth in the past. As October 1823 progressed, Canning became less of an advocate for American cooperation and actually leaned toward France instead. An agreement signed with the French in early October 1823 saw France promise not to intervene to restore Spain to America, but in the back of Adams's mind he continued to fear a sudden swift French action and the appearance of a French fleet on the South American coast. This fear and mistrust of European intentions with regard to their doorstep gave Adams's argument more traction and persuaded Monroe to follow the former's course. It was thus that when Adams opened the door to Monroe's executive mansion and entered his study after having been summoned by his old friend, he knew he would have the president's support to act with the policy that would establish American principles, communicate American concerns, and signify America's opposition to the old world's way of doing things. A stormy document had been sent by Russia's ambassador in the United States to Monroe, constructed by the Russian Tsar to communicate to America why Russia's policy was right, why the Holy Alliance was justified in its actions, and how America could best accommodate her in the future. It was at the very least a challenge to America's national honour, and Adams was determined to answer it in the tone of defiance. The decision to defy rather than accommodate weighed heavily on the mind of President Monroe, since he worried for the consequences it would provoke from Europe, and that was why he had appeared so grave when Adams greeted him in his study. Yet, as the two men and the rest of the cabinet talked, the alarmists were overruled, and Adams was able to persuade President Monroe to allow him to construct a defined reply. He left the executive mansion determined to define America's position in the new world, whatever the old world decided to do in response. On the 20th of November 1823, Adams sent a detailed response to the European powers, with the boogeyman of the Holy Alliance at the top of the list of recipients. Among the gems of the document was the defining statement, if the colonies, in South and Central America, belonged to Spain, we should object to any transfer of them to other nations, which would materially affect our interests or rights. Our present opposition to the disposal of any part of the American continents by Spain, in league with her European allies, is that they do not belong to Spain, and can no more be disposed of by her than by the United States. In W.C. Ford's article, John Quincy Adams and the Monroe Doctrine, the writer elucidates the impact which he feels the Secretary of State for Foreign Affairs had on the creation of that policy. Quote, As an ally of Great Britain, the United States would play a very secondary part. Alone, even against a united Europe, 
America could gain the same result and without departing from a policy of avoiding entangling political alliances with any European power. Monroe was willing to raise a European question by proposing aid to liberal Spain or in the name of freeing Greece from the Ottomans, but Adams avoided such a step and changed the issue into an American question, to be determined by America without the interference of any European government, whether English or continental. In this lies the great merit and strength of Adams's position. He lifted the question from being one of joint action with England to one of individual action by the United States. End quote. Adams's determination to pursue an independent policy for the United States which would define it and differentiate it from Europe and Britain was a bold move, but it came from Adams's conviction that the Holy Alliance would oppose strong United States policies, whether they were in tandem with London or not. So going it alone would at least provide the distinction of independence and notoriety if conflict or European disapproval was destined to come either way. Adams also saw the value in remaining aloof from any agreements which could draw American resources away from the preferred policy, and an alliance with Britain could distract Monroe's presidency and reduce its security, a combination which would be disastrous for the president's isolationist supporters. That was how the United States felt, but what was the situation in Europe? I am wary of taking our focus too much off Monroe here, since that is what we're really here for and this is 10 American presidents after all, but there are a few nuggets of information regarding Europe and the continental alliance system there, which I think it would benefit this narrative to look into, however briefly. First we must look at the issue of France. Contrary to what one might think and to the story I may have portrayed, it was not Spain that possessed the grandest or most unnerving ambitions for the ex-Spanish holdings. Spain had been resoundingly defeated in the Napoleonic Wars, and while it was a second-rate power before the war, it soon became a third-rate one in the eyes of most observers by this time. That's not to say Spain's power was irrelevant, but it does mean that, if a representative of each of the European powers were lined up and the United States had to tee off one of them, Spain would probably be the least dangerous choice. Sure, the Spanish still had fingers in numerous worldwide pies, such as the Philippines for one great example, but its economic reach and possession of South American markets used to be its strongest selling point. Now that such markets no longer fell within the definite Spanish jurisdiction, the estimation of Spain had notably dipped. Were that analogy to be repeated, and were European representatives to be lined up as I'd said, the power which the United States would probably least desire to offend would certainly be France for a number of reasons. French power was real. It was tangible and present in the French-influenced southern regions of the United States, recently purchased in 1806, and in the perception of United States policymakers of French military might. The French invasion of Spain that overthrew the liberal Spanish movement caused revulsion in the United States, but it also engendered a deep respect of French military power in the United States government at the same time. It is hard for us to imagine this when we consider the defeats of the French up to 1815, but we also have to remember at the same time that Napoleon's ideals and legend had already ran rampant by 1823 in the United States. He had been perceived as both an enemy and ally of American ideals depending on who you asked, but Bonaparte's ability to raise the French up to unimaginable heights had not been lost on US statesmen. France had been defeated, but only by a coalition of all of Europe after 20 long years of war. 
So American statesmen in Monroe's administration had seen Napoleonic France in all of its glory, and they had been seriously impressed. As Dexter Perkins in his article, Europe, Spanish America and the Monroe Doctrine, explains though, the feeling in France regarding American power certainly was not mutual. Quote, that the attitude of the United States was in any sense a major factor in French diplomacy, it would be absurd to assume. The dispatches of the French Foreign Office in 1823 yield a surprisingly small number of references to the American government. Far less account was taken of the attitude of the new country than it might be pleasant to imagine. End quote. Harsh as this may seem from the French perspective, we shouldn't judge them too much for it. It'd be somewhat naive to expect the French to look to American power in the same reverence as the power of their fellow Europeans. What the French wanted above all were secure South American markets. This was why the end goal of French diplomacy between 1822 to 24 was the establishment of mini Bourbon monarchies in South and Central America. This wasn't a goal because it would project French power in the region. Instead, it was a goal because it would nab the preferential trade rights from the British and the United States and pass them instead to the French. In the ambitious post-war French government, the security of French commerce and the improvement of the French position were key goals of its administrations, as collective attempts were made to rebuild after years of war and defeat. Despite this though, the idea that Paris would authorise sending a grand French fleet across the Atlantic to secure such ends was barely discussed. Indeed, even the most extreme of French imperialists did not believe that such a tactic would win them much success. French aims could be acquired by first marrying their invigorated royal family to the newly independent states, and second by diplomatically negotiating the best way for these new Bourbon family branches to gain some much needed benefits for the home country in France. It is hard to imagine that, even if US statesmen knew the full details of French motives, they would have trusted them to keep it peaceful, especially when you consider what the French government had just done to keep the status quo ticking along in Spain. But France was not the only power the US had to keep in its mind, nor is it the only power whose position we must address for a little bit here. The second stop off in the continent of concerned European powers is Austria. Austria in this period was viewed as the benchmark of military land power in Europe, the anvil upon which Britain had smashed French power for the duration of the wars against the French. Though their navy was less than impressive in comparison with the maritime powers, their influence and position in Europe meant that they couldn't be ignored when it came to dealings with the Holy Alliance. Thus, when talk of a congress to discuss the situation in South America began to be bandied about in spring 1823, it was Austrian Chancellor and all-around legend Prince Metternich who rubbished the idea of allowing the United States to attend. His opposition to the idea of the United States even having a seat at the table was enough for Canning to drop the idea of US attendance altogether, and his language is worth noting here since it really shows the kind of state of mind European statesmen were in at this time, as well as how they felt about the US in general. Metternich said, in our view, the United States of America can never take part in a European Congress, whatever subjects may be treated there. First, because the US are bound by none of those diplomatic agreements which the European Alliance has discussed and adopted since 1814, and to which are referred practically all questions on account of which the powers come together in a conference. Secondly, because the principal aim of these Congresses, the maintenance of peace and the established order in Europe, does not concern the US. 
Thirdly, because in great part the principles recognised and approved by the European powers are not merely foreign but opposed to the principles of the United States, to the form of their government, to their doctrines, to their customs, to the civil and political regime of their populations. There can exist amicable relations between the powers of Europe and the US. Treaties, alliances, engagements of every sort may be negotiated with them, but no common basis exists on which the US could take part in a European Congress. No doubt the US are more directly interested in the future fate of the Spanish colonies than Austria, Russia or Prussia. But the interest of these powers is nonetheless real, and nonetheless worthy of respect. It would, perhaps, be permissible to say that it is that of a more elevated nature. The interest of the US is that of their commerce, to the increase of their territory, of the extension of their power. It is an interest purely material. That of the European powers and of the continental powers, as of the others, is an interest in the preservation, the stability and the material and moral well-being of the great European family. And if they should assume to deal with the future relations of Spain with her vast American provinces, it is not to divide the spoils or to obtain any positive advantage whatsoever. It is instead to assure themselves that those relations will not be too far incompatible with the peace and general prosperity of Europe and will work as little harm as possible to the rights and interests of those governments which, so to speak, created America and have ruled over it for three centuries. This challenge to American sovereignty, as well as the definite statements made to the effect that the development of the Holy Alliance in South America was none of the US's business, would certainly have been perceived as somewhat insulting to both Adams and Monroe. Yet, determined and uncompromising though he was, Prince Metternich was far more pragmatic than most of his equals in Europe. He did not, unlike the newly reinstalled Spanish absolutist government, dream of a reconquest of Latin America, nor did he believe in the ambitions of France to establish Bourbon satellite states there either. Instead, he advised the Spanish to compromise on what could be held and give up on what could not. What Metternich objected to was not Latin American independence, per se, but the possibility of US interference taking Latin America away from Europe by means of getting beneficial trade deals, diplomatic ties or otherwise, before Spain, Austria, France and others had the chance to do so. The third problem which Monroe's administration would have to bear in mind was Russia. Even today, the stance of Russia is difficult to ascertain in the early 1820s. Certainly, the Tsar did want Europe to possess a level of influence in the region of South and Central America, but he was content to follow Metternich's lead when it came to the issue of reconquest. Partly because his court recognised it would be unfeasible, and partly because that same court was becoming distracted with the issue of the chafing Greeks and the Ottoman Empire, which would in time erupt into war. So the Tsar's view on the whole issue of Latin independence and American interference took its lead from what the Austrian Chancellor, Prince Metternich, actually wanted. In a time when the Tsar could realise his ambitions closer to home, such as in Greece and in Asia, the maintenance of the Holy Alliance was more important than any far-flung American pipe dreams. What this meant for the US was that they wouldn't have to deal with a different strand of policy coming from the Russian bear, though at the same time it also meant that Monroe's administration would have to be doubly careful of Austria since Austria was undoubtedly backed up by the Russian Tsar, who, uninterested enough in the situation to hold back on deciding either way where his empire stood, was content, in the large part, to follow Vienna's lead. By our timeline, the only certainty emerging from Europe was that a congress on what to do about Latin America would take place in the near future, 
and that all the powers concerned were determined to exclude the US from any of its deliberations, despite the limited protests of the British, who George Canning claimed would refuse to send a representative in protest. Just as formal invitations for that congress were sent out by the Spanish King Ferdinand VII, who of course had the greatest interest in the venture, word was filtering back to the European courts in early December 1823 about a message crafted by the US President James Monroe, and it was unlike anything that either Metternich, the Russian Tsar, or Sir George Canning had been expecting. In the message Monroe had delivered to Congress on the 2nd of December 1823, a series of issues were addressed. Chief among them was the interesting introduction which stressed the need for unity amidst the troubling international times, and the necessity in providing information to all US statesmen serving abroad and at home. Monroe stressed the strength of the Navy in being able to defend US interests, and the desire he had to maintain the peace between the US and Britain, which had been established during the 1815 Treaty of Ghent. Thereafter, the future tone of the document was set by the resounding statement that The American continents, by the free and independent condition which they have assumed and maintain, are henceforth not to be considered as subjects for future colonization by any European powers. This stark statement was accompanied by a more detailed manifesto explaining the wishes and concerns of the US, as well as summarizing the recent years of conflict on the continent. President Monroe continued, The citizens of the US cherish sentiments the most friendly in favour of the liberty and happiness of their fellow men on the other side of the Atlantic. In the wars of the European powers and matters relating to themselves we have never taken part, nor does it comport with our policy to do so. It is only when our rights are invaded or seriously menaced that we resent injuries or make preparations for our defence. With the movements in this hemisphere, we are of necessity more immediately connected, and by causes which must be obvious to all enlightened and impartial observers, we must act in accordance with our national interests. We owe it, therefore, to candour and to the amicable relations existing between the US and those powers to declare that we should consider any attempt on their part to extend their system to any portion of this hemisphere as dangerous to our peace and safety. With the existing colonies or dependencies of any European power, we have not interfered and shall not interfere. But with the governments who have declared their independence and maintained it, and whose independence we have on great consideration and on just principles acknowledged, we could not view any interposition for the purpose of oppressing them or controlling them in any other manner their destiny by any European power in any other light than as the manifestation of an unfriendly disposition towards the United States of America. Our policy in regard to Europe, which was adopted at an early stage of the wars, which has so long agitated that quarter of the globe, nevertheless remains the same, which is not to interfere in the internal concerns of any of its powers, to consider the government de facto as the legitimate government for us, to cultivate friendly relations with it, and to preserve those relations by a frank, firm and manly policy, meeting in all instances the just claims of every power, submitting to injuries from none. But in regard to those continents, circumstances are eminently and conspicuously different. It is impossible that the Allied powers should extend their political systems to any portion of either continent without endangering our peace and happiness, nor can anyone believe that our southern brethren, if left to themselves, would adopt it of their own accord. 
It is equally impossible, therefore, that we should behold such interposition in any form with indifference. If we look to the comparative strength and resources of Spain and those new governments, and their distance from each other, it must be obvious that she can never subdue them. It is still the true policy of the US to leave the parties to themselves, in the hope that the other powers will pursue the same course. Monroe's address was direct and to the point. It left little room for different interpretations, and there could be little doubt as to who the address was aimed at. The Holy Alliance, President Monroe's administration understood, would have to be confronted by some means before their exclusive Congress established Latin America as a new European stomping ground. The last days of November 1823 saw a hardening of both Adams and Monroe's attitude towards the European concert, especially since the snubbing of America for the proposed Congress was by that stage well known across the world. Whatever the Europeans may have decided on at that Congress is an issue for debate and future speculation, but what is certain is that if the Congress had gone ahead, it would have portrayed American sovereignty as baseless and American influence, power and prestige as non-existent. Young though the United States was as a nation, it could not tolerate the old colonial powers talking about its backyard as though it wasn't there, and whether Metternich, the Tsar or the French wanted to admit it or not, any change in how the newly independent states of South and Central America operated would dramatically affect the United States, particularly as such changes came about at the expense of the American interest. In a sense, Monroe's doctrine can be seen as a form of protest since it was launched against the Holy Alliance at a time when its members seemed content to ignore America altogether and act, as they had done for centuries, as though Europe was the sole factor and Europe was the only actor that had interests for consideration. Monroe's statement was one of defiance as well because, ambitious and provocative though it may appear, it laid down a costly gauntlet to the Europeans. Puncturing the balloon of imperialism which Europe had been gleefully squeaking next to America's ear for the past decade, Monroe's address established that yes, it was America's business and yes, she would do something about it. It also opened up a range of problems for Europe in other ways. Britain under Sir George Canning's influence was notably opposed to any idea of a forced reconquest of America, and her officials made it plain that any use of force would violate the agreement made with France in October 1823, an agreement between the two states which had established the principle that force would never be used to bring the American states back into the European fold, if indeed they could be brought back. The Monroe Doctrine forced Europeans to take sides, and soon began to paint a picture of an offended Holy Alliance with Britain drifting away from its post-Napoleonic accords and into the pro-American camp. This drift has as much to do with the perceived aggressive ambitions of the French, who had just invaded Spain, don't forget, as it did with London's opposition to drastic action in South America. Still, these factors, combined with the issue Canning had with the idea of a European Congress in the first place, meant that the post-doctrine world became quite a volatile place quite fast. Metternich, not to be outdone, still insisted on the meeting of a Congress by late January 1824, and he sent the following message to the Tsar on the 23rd of that month, saying, If we have expressed an absolute veto on the admission of the United States to a Congress, our action is justified, not only on principle, but also by the rules of sound policy. The grave question which will occupy the conference is not, in light of which it is desirable to consider it, an American question. It is and will remain in the first period of the discussion entirely European. 
In the beginning of the discussion, the aim will be to prevent all the children of Europe from becoming adults of America. To think of drawing the US into the council, occupied with this important inquiry, to admit even the possibility that they should intervene in it by virtue of any rights whatsoever, this will be to commit a great error, to renounce the security which is still to be found in a principle, even when the question of fact is no longer under one's influence. Unfortunately for Metternich, though, the power to make such decisions was not in Vienna's court. It was instead in Britain's. Britain, as the primary power of the day, had the real power to control what happened next. Would Canning captain the Holy Alliance toward a South America invasion and pressure Monroe to stand down? It would be costly, sure, but the United States would never be able to withstand the combined pressure and power of a all-united Europe. Alternatively, Canning could decide to stand with Monroe and make a defining stand against the Holy Alliance. This would surely present a new chapter in British foreign policy, and London and Washington could certainly prove a formidable foil to any European power if they were willing to pool their resources and fully solve their own differences. In the event, characteristic of the fact that Britain had the power to make its own destiny in the 19th century, Canning chose option C. His administration was uncomfortable with the idea of tying itself to Europe, and did not view the possibility that the Holy Alliance would be made more powerful with much positivity. Yet at the same time there was not much to be gained, in Canning's mind, from a definite pro-American stance which would alienate Britain from Europe. He chose instead to pursue a middle ground. Britain would not come out in favour of the Monroe Doctrine, but she would continue to trade and deal with the United States on favourable, mutually beneficial terms as she had done for some time. At the same time, she would not join the League of European Powers and instead would stand opposed to the point of war to any notions of conquering Spain's former colonies in the name of the Old Order. This unique third way caused two immediate consequences. First, it ensured that the Monroe Doctrine would not immediately be called into question, and that the bluff launched by the United States would not yet be called. And second, it ensured that, without British support and indeed now faced with the prospect of war with Britain, the proposed Congress of the Holy Alliance, into which Metternich, the Spanish King and others had invested so much stock, abruptly collapsed. For a time, Russia's court continued to pester Austria regarding the issue of South America, and the Russian Chancellor was the sole figure, besides the Spanish King, who seemed to believe in the possibility of reconquest, but even he began to see sense too. Dexter Perkins explains why. Quote, it was England, not the United States, which occupied the mind of the Russian minister. It was fear of British opposition which led him to abandon the idea of aid to Spain. Metternich and others did not abandon the idea of a congress on the colonial question with the arrival of the Monroe Doctrine in Europe. They even drew renewed hopes of British cooperation from this message. But their ardour for a congress cooled with the refusal of the British Foreign Secretary to participate. They, too, paid more heed to London than to Washington. The truth of the matter is that the continental powers at no time in 1823 or 24 ever had a practicable policy outlined and ready to be carried out. Nothing indeed but reconquest would have satisfied the Spanish king, and reconquest was never seriously considered by any other power, except perhaps by Russia. Even in the latter case, it is clear that there was never any intention to act alone. As for the influence of the United States on the policy of the Holy Alliance, it was at all times slight. French policy was formed without consulting the wishes of the American government. 
France and Austria definitely wished to exclude America from any deliberation on the colonial question, and their determination was only strengthened by President Monroe's doctrine. The stand taken by Monroe did not alter in any essential respect the viewpoint of the continental powers. And indeed, why attribute to the America of a hundred years ago the power and prestige which appertains to it among the nations of the world today? End quote. Thus, the conclusion one should draw from the turmoil of the early 1820s is that, while the Monroe Doctrine did not necessarily cause Europe to stand back and take notice, it did cause the British to take sides, and the side that London took engendered the Monroe Doctrine into American foreign policy, since it gave both sides of the Atlantic enough breathing space for the entire colonial issue to come off the table. It was off the table just long enough for the entire question then to fade from the minds of the Holy Alliance, and in time South American independence would be accepted as the new status quo. Besides, as Metternich and the Tsar would soon discover, despite the ending of the Napoleonic Wars, Europe had by no means shed its code of conflict. Plenty more wars, revolts and crises were in store for the continent, and these would serve to more than occupy its relevant courts and alliances and ensure that Europeans were far more concerned with what was going on at home than thousands of miles away across an unconquerable sea. Another point deserves mention too. You may have noticed the ending of the article alluded to the fact that, quote, we should not treat the America of 1823 the same as the one which existed in the world a hundred years later, end quote. This is because the time in which Dexter Perkins wrote the article, 1924, was a period during which everything to do with the Monroe Doctrine was being called into question. From the years 1914 to 24 or so, a range of articles from all sides of the American spectrum were written, with such titles as The Myths of Monroe's Doctrine, The Benefits of the Monroe Doctrine, and Should We Abandon the Monroe Doctrine. These works emerged at a time when the United States was emerging itself from a period of change, from isolation after the First World War and onto the world stage, into the camp of the world powers. It gave US leaders and officials time to reflect on the century which had been dominated by the claims and teachings of the Monroe Doctrine, but it also opened the way for criticism as both United States and European historians began to ask the question, was the Monroe Doctrine really all that? Did James Monroe really expect to redefine America's relationship with Europe, and did he honestly not expect such a defined message to provoke any hostile reaction from its recipients? Part of what makes the Monroe Doctrine so interesting is that it was delivered at a time when the United States was at something of a crossroads. If it did nothing, then its sovereignty and interests would be seriously challenged and affected by the ambitions of old Europe on South and Central America manifesting themselves in the Congress which the US was excluded from. For the sake of American prestige, national honour and security interests, he had to make a stand and trust in the stance of Britain, the divisions of the Holy Alliance and the distance of the Atlantic to protect the stand. Were he to be successful, he knew that the Monroe Doctrine would redefine America's relationship with his neighbours to the south, but perhaps not even he appreciated the resulting legend that would accompany it. There simply isn't space to cover the impact that the Monroe Doctrine had on US policy at home and abroad within this episode. Entire books, history courses, journal series and libraries have been filled and dedicated just to that subject, and numerous points of opinion are still being developed. Whether President James Monroe understood the extent to which his doctrine would shape US policy or not, 
What is clear is that the Monroe Doctrine changed forever the way Americans would think about themselves. When the French invaded Mexico in the mid-19th century, when the Spanish fought a campaign of brutal suppression against the rebelling Cubans at the end of the 19th century, when the British sought to extend their claims over Venezuela again at the end of the 19th century, when South America fought against itself in the wars of the Pacific coalitions, and when the Panama Canal was under construction, at all these occasions, US administrations look back to the Monroe Doctrine for its cue on how and where to act. When United States citizens examined their past as the 20th century dawned, they understood it in terms of what President Monroe had laid down as the cornerstone of US policy. It soon became, not important as far as its practical impact was concerned, but critical to the United States citizens' understanding of their place in the world. Its status became legendary not because of what it actually did, since the list of definite results from the doctrine are surprisingly few, but what it represented. It was an act of defiance, an assertion of independence, a defense of the ideals which had helped found the American Republic in the first place. It was a mandate, an assurance to its neighbors of the South that their independence was forever, and that just as surely as Americans had cast off the British yoke for good, so too had these Latin American republics bid farewell to their Iberian overlords. In a sense, it is probably one of the most significant bluffs in history that was never really called, but it was much more than that as well. It signaled that the US was ready to confidently step onto the world stage on its own, after years of foundational divisions and tensions. It also changed how Europe saw the New World, since the US would now have to be considered if any European power wished to deal in the New World. The old status quo of European predominance was gone, and indeed the era of European domination of the whole world was on borrowed time. Just as the Monroe Doctrine had been developed and would be elucidated in time, so too would another idea, Manifest Destiny. The Monroe Doctrine assured America's place in the concert of nations, and it was a promise to the so-called children of the Spanish Empire that they were here to stay. Manifest Destiny, on the other hand, promised that one day a true American superpower would rise from the ashes of the European Empire to rival and then surpass everything that the old age of empires had once accomplished. When that occurred, history would denote that a new era was dawning, the American century. Such incredible transformations began in the halls of Monroe's administration, not because it led to supreme American power, but because it put in practical terms the belief which George Washington had taught Americans to have in themselves, in the belief systems and in their form of government. Monroe would bluff and he would succeed. He would make a claim completely at odds with the actual power America possessed. Viewed at the time as a necessary step to take in a world which barely acknowledged the American voice, I like to think of it instead as an American stone being tossed into the calm lake of fate. The ripples created by its splash may have been small at first, but in time they redefined what it meant to be an American, and by the time the US stood as the defender of the West in the Cold War, these ripples had become waves, and these waves a tsunami which had smothered and drowned the old images of the post-British 13 colonies, and established in its place the modern American state now a triumphant guardian over the very countries which the Monroe Doctrine had once been directed at. My name is Zach Twomley from When Diplomacy Fails podcast. 
Thanks to Royfield Brown for having me here on 10 American Presidents. I hope you enjoyed our unique look at President Monroe and his world, and that you'll let us know what you thought. Finally, I would like to say a huge thanks to all of you for listening. See you soon. Thank you for Zach Tormley for that absolutely riveting and excellent exposition on the Monroe Doctrine. I think we can safely say that Zach is one of the best history podcasters and an absolutely captivating storyteller. You can probably hear that I'm not exactly in my normal studio, but I'm out in Uxbridge, which is northwest London, and that is one of the reasons why I enjoy being a podcaster because I'm not rooted to any place or time. Some of you will know that I'm currently trying to move to the United States. You could aid me, dear listener, by going on to iTunes and writing a review. I will be submitting to the American consulate that I have a body of work I'm somewhat proud of and my peer review will be iTunes reviews. So please, if you like 10 American Presidents, why don't you go over onto iTunes and post a review today. If you'd like to contribute to the show, you can do this by going onto patreon.com where you can pledge a sum of money for each show that I do. At the moment, there are four or five Patreons and thank you to you guys. Um, You can support the show for any sum you want, but I recommend $2 per show. If you'd like to catch up with everything that I'm doing, you can do this by going onto Facebook and typing in 10 American Presidents where you can see exactly what I'm up to. Or you can follow me on Twitter where I'm 10usap.com. You can go onto the website which is 10usp.com where you can actually see the shows and comment on them. I look forward to hearing from you soon. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. Mr. Pop. That the only thing we have to fear Four score and seven years ago. When in the course of human events. And so, my fellow Americans, 
Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. There is not a black America and a white America and Latino America and Asian America. There's the United States.